You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, Ari Conway, and my guest today is Erin Schwartz. Erin, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Erin Schwartz. I write about film, TV, and books for The Nation, and I'm also a staff writer at The Strategist at New York Magazine. Uh, thanks for coming back on. So the, the last time you were on was a couple of years ago, I think. And we talked about a great piece that you wrote about the Sopranos and New Jersey political corruption. And um, that was really one of my favorite conversations that I've had on this platform. So really? I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm a fan of yours. And I, and I think even then we there had been rumors or at least there was some idea that there was going to be a Sopranos movie. And we're like, oh, I'll have to have you back up for the movie. At least I think I said that. Anyway, the movie, the movie came out. Mm-hmm. And it's called The Many Saints of Newark. And so we're mainly going to be talking about that. And then we might also talk about a piece that you wrote about the masked singer, uh, if we have enough time. But um, yeah, okay, so, and I guess we're going to be spoiling this movie, if anyone even cares, uh, because it, it's, it's strangely like, this could have been like the cultural event of the year or something, like a Sopranos movie. Yeah. And it's, a lot of people have been disappointed about it. So disappointed by it. So what did... What did you think of it? Yeah, I mean, I, I parked the reviewing the Sopranos movie slot in the nation's lineup like a year, like the minute it came out, I was like, please let me do this one. Um, and I was really excited for it. It was not a good movie. It was like badly structured. Um, the plot was sort of meandering. I think um, it wasn't meandering. It was like driven by a series of grudges that were like sort of vaguely linked to each other. So they were just murders after murders after murders. Um, The sort of historical event that it was pegged to, to sort of like anchor the story and act as a um, origin story for some of the characters were the Newark uprisings of the sixties, which could be, I mean, like, I think there is like a real lack of media about the sort of, I mean, like urban, you know, uprisings and protest movements in the 60s and like the Newark um, one specifically. But um, yeah, it was like pretty superficially dealt with. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if this is too early to get into this, but one of the first things I texted my editor was like this as Green Book energy, kind of being like (laughs) Italians were there too. Um, So yeah, Yeah, it was overall, I think, not um, a super successful film for the ambitions that it set out for itself to sort of connect the story of this like beloved cast of Sopranos characters who are um, in in the story and you sort of see where they come from, um, like Livia Soprano, there's a young Tony Soprano, um, main character is Dickie Moltisanti, who's Christopher's father who was killed, um, spoiler, but like, you know that from the show. Um, and yeah, I think it, it could have been like an interesting way to sort of provide context for the the like socio-political reality that people of that generation in New Jersey sort of grew up in. And instead it was just like this complete it was kind of it was kind of a mess. I don't know. You watched it recently. Is that a fair Yeah, I actually yeah, I just watched it last night um after putting it off and sort of because it got mixed reviews and thinking um, I, I want to see this. Uh, I'm a big Sopranos fan, but not a, not like a super fan and hadn't like rewatched it during quarantine as many other people did, but was still like excited to see it. And 
And then once it got those mixed reviews, I was sort of like, yeah, whatever. Then um, once you reviewed it, gave, a, gave me a chance to actually force myself to watch it. And it was it was definitely disappointing. I mean, it, it's sort of like, you know, like it probably it shouldn't exist. Like it would be better if it didn't exist. <laughs> You know, it, it, yeah, I think something I wrote in the piece was it felt like uh, an outline or a, for a potentially interesting series of TV that had just been rushed into production as a, I think it's two yeah. hours, maybe a little under. Um, but I think it's exactly there, two there, hours. There are that like just don't have the sort of oxygen to land the way they're intended. Like there's a scene where um, Dickie Moltisanti like kills his girlfriend and it should be this like really gutting um moment as like a lot of the sort of um deaths in the original soprano series are especially deaths of women who are intimate partners of men in the mafia um yeah and it's just it's almost like funny because it's so abrupt um which is not obviously how it's meant to land yeah um yeah it's it's like there's just too much crammed in there and then like nothing has the space that it needs to justify its existence as a plot point in this movie yeah, the, the only way I can make sense of this is that it, in, in some original version, it was conceived as a season or multiple seasons of television episodes. And then that didn't come together for whatever reason. And they said, OK, let's just cram it into one movie. And if it had been a given like, a, you know, eight episodes or 13 or something, maybe it would have worked um, or, or maybe it still would have been at least it would have been less perplexing. Uh, and and yeah, there's certain plot points that um, seemingly come out of nowhere. Key, a particularly key one, which it would be the um, since we're spoiling the um, Harold, the Leslie Odom character, like having an affair with um, the the Gumar, comes comes out of nowhere. I mean, there's they exchange some glances, but like, how do they even how do they yeah. even know each other? How could they like they have cell phones? How do they find each other? The the whole thing with the Gumar, especially like in the 60s and 70s, would be like they keep them. Um, you know, like yeah. kept up, held up in the penthouse or something and they can't come out. They only use them for sex. And so um, how, how those characters even connected is not, not explained and hard to imagine to begin with. And yeah, and they definitely had like using the, this time period and the Newark uprising slash riots, um, like the only other work of art that comes to mind that uses that period is American Pastoral, Philip Roth's novel. Um and that's that's it I can think of, and and it seemed like they could have, yeah they really they could have tried to do something or say something about about that event, but it's depicted in like three or four minutes of the movie, and then and then that's it, and there's no larger statement about it or, re, yeah. or you just you see it happening, and then like this one character, the Leslie Odom character, kind of like gets radicalized by it, um, and and that's about it. And, 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 and they called it. And so the, one of the things we talked about in, that, in our previous episode was how the show is so New Jersey and was like New Jersey, like so many aspects of the strangest of New Jersey are embedded in the show. And then they put Newark in the title. And it's not like Newark is a, is a city that gets people really excited to see a movie, but there, but it could have, there was nothing New York about it. Exactly. There's nothing New York about it. They leave Newark at like, I don't know, but about a third of the way through the movie, the Sopranos move like, and it's again, like these things that are real phenomena, like white flight in Newark is like something that completely reshaped the state and like led to a lot of, like was a, a big factor in like systemic racism in, in like New Jersey cities. For and, sure. Um, and, but it's like, there's no, yeah, there's like very little information that's added to any of these sort of like 
grand um, or like abstract things that people kind of know about the history of the state. Like, I don't know. I mean, I'm probably not, I haven't done like a ton of research into this specifically, but like 60s urban riots shots have these like tropes where it's like a circling shot. There's like incoherence, like no one knows what's happening. Everyone's like very like confused. Someone is killed. People are sad. You never see the person who's killed that person. And the focus is on like, this is a chaotic moment and like there's no intention and no agency here. And I like understand that like, you know, things are chaotic, but like that thing of like, just being like, just reaching to all of these like tropes that have been like seen again and again. And that are like, I don't know, I think probably kind of in the overs of probably kind of not kind of racist. Um, and like not having any sort of like additional, like historical or like dramaturgical work to sort of add. Yeah context or or I mean even like the characters the fictional characters were invented to add to that story kind of just stand there <laughs> like, like he's just like oh I'm I'm watching this like he's not really a participant um right well, well Dicky gets hit yeah. in the head something someone throws something at his car and he gets oh, yes, hit in the head car. yeah yeah it's, it's like a brick or something but then that yeah. doesn't well okay so I, I did sort of think, uh, you, yeah, so there's a trope of like urban riot in film. And actually I thought that it was, it looked like they did a good version of that. What, you know, accepting that's what it was. It sort of looked fine, you know, for a made for TV movie, essentially. Um, and, and the period, you know, the costumes are good and the period sets are all good and um, and so forth. But it, yeah, there was just like, no, like they could have done like a, you know, half an hour, like they could have had like half an hour of the movie set during the riots and like see what all the characters are doing or something that's some way to do it but it just it could have been anywhere it could have been any sort of event and it just was so strange based on what we know about david chase and and the the original work and so one thing this made me think about was um you know this is sort of like the star wars prequels like (laughs) there's something that's universally beloved and then you hear like the original creators coming back like years later to 15, you know, like probably roughly about the same amount of time between the other Sopranos and this versus Return of the Jedi and Phantom Menace. And, and they're telling the origin story of like sort of the villain, you know, it's, it's Tony, this villain or hero or whatever. And, and, and and then it's just a total cock up. And then you're sort of like, well, maybe this is, you know, just doing a prequel to something that's universally beloved. Like, is there, I'm trying to think, is there another version that could possibly work. The only thing that came to mind was Godfather part two, which has parallel plot lines of the prequel, but continuing the story also. And of course that's the like paradigmatic mob movie. Um, But aside from that, I couldn't think of anything that was an artistic success. So maybe this was just totally misconceived from the get go. And there was no version of this that actually would have been good because you can't, you're supposed to care about Tony. Oh, version. I think part of it was that I kind of got the sense from like the Sopranos piece, the which was like a review of the Sopranos session plus Chris Christie's book. Um, that like Sopranos was an idea that had kind of like been in the cooker for a while, and that like um, David Chase had worked on a lot of uh, like you know network TV shows that he hadn't felt super creatively fulfilled by. Yeah, he was on like Hill Street Blues. He was like writing for Hill Street Blues Rockford or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, so he was sort of an your work a day TV writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like, I think sort of over time, like all of that sort of 
some probably some of that energy went towards building out the world of the Sopranos and making it feel like sufficiently compelling and real to, you know, power an entire show. And it felt like this was way less thought through and like way less sort of compelling. I mean, just down to like how convincing the characters feel and whether it feels like they have stories or just kind of there as any in your life whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Which exactly. I see not to like, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the Star Wars prequel is a good comparison. I think in general, it felt like very indicative of the kind of current reboot wave that's happening in media that I've heard attributed to like mergers and that Warner Brothers now has a lot of IP and they're just kind of churning out um, content using that IP across, you know, different franchises. Um, I definitely think this is a case of that because, you know, it's, that was a relatively, I forget when that was, but like that's relatively recent. And then this came out and HBO owned the IP before and now Warner Brothers owns it. Um, but yeah, I think it's bad. Or like, this was the point I've, I've reviewed a lot of um, reboots because I, you know, that's like a lot of what's happening right now. That's all there is essentially yeah. right now is. Yeah. And I was like, for a while, I was being like, kind of like, oh, you know, this is something everyone's, or like whenever I was complaining about something, I sometimes am curious about, or I'm like, I don't want to entirely join the complaining. Like, what is redeeming about this? And for a minute, I was like, we've had moments in the history of aesthetic production where like stylized forms were the only things you could use. Like you could only make art about the church for a long period of Western art history and people made mm -hmm. good art. Like if you can only kind of work, if you can only find the funding to make your movie, if it's about IP that already exists, I think people are still capable of making good movies within those constraints. Um, but this was the movie where I just got really sick of it. I was like, oh, like, this is so bad. I kind of, it was like, because it could have been that. Like, it could have been the thing where, you know, there is a, a really, like, easy, strong financial incentive to make a Sopranos prequel, but you could make a good Sopranos prequel and have that be worthwhile kind of despite the um, market pressures that are on film and TV at this moment. And it was so bad. And and it kind of made me like lose faith in the idea that any of these like reboots can be good unless someone is like kind of going out of their way to make them good. Um, right. And I, well, yeah. So it's like, why does, okay, why does this exist? Well, it's valuable IP and the theory that Warner Brothers was pressing. Did Warner Brothers own HBO back in the day? I, I can't, I don't remember I don't think whether so. that was I, true I, or not. I may be wrong. I should fact check myself, but I think it was like a recent-ish thing. Um, right. Yeah, I've been, I've been describing things recently as like the values actually just all in the IP, like um, the Christian church of <laughs> <Love> IP value. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, they definitely, I mean, they have some some iconic characters, uh, literally, uh, in the, they in, do like, have the, some the Catholic iconic, church. You don't want to draw them in some, some areas because it's uh, idolatry. This is true. Okay, so let's, well, let's, that gives a good... Um, uh, segue to something I did want to discuss. Okay, and so your you your piece, which we'll link to below, is titled "Inside the Hell That Is the Many Things of Newark," and let's just talk about that about the opening scene, and, and sort of like maybe I'm I feel like a David Chase apologist or something, but like he did make The Sopranos, which is like one of the great artistic achievements of like the past thirty or forty years, okay. and then, so he so he what you know maybe he just has totally lost it because he hasn't really done anything in a long time, or maybe. Um, it's like he he intended something with this. And what, so what was he in trying to tell us? And so the, the very, the opening scene is 
you're in a cemetery and there's a slow tracking shot. And it seems that we're in some sort of liminal space between the worlds because we're hearing the voices seemingly of the people who are buried in the graves as we wend our way through. And so you hear someone like talking about dying in childbirth, right? Isn't that? Yeah, like, they're all the talking about how they died, yeah. And then you arrive at Christopher Moltisanti's grave. And so he's one of the, you know, the many characters in Sopranos. And you hear, um, what is the actor's name? It just went out of my head. Um, Michael Imperioli. Michael Imperioli's like, very iconic voice. Like, yeah, I saw him uh, give a reading at the Playboy Club in Manhattan a few years ago. <laughs> How was it? Yeah. It was really, I mean, it was like pretty bad, but pretty great. Like it was like a... Because oh, he, he writes fiction, talk, right? Huh? He, write, he writes short fiction yeah, or something? Yeah, I mean, it, was, it was like part of a... a sh- fiction or a novel he was working on or a short story collection it was like a, a chapter basically right okay so they so so it's disorienting to begin with because you're like okay who who's talking and then you sort of are like grokking it that it's like oh these are like the, the ghosts this is like lincoln and the bardo or something these are the spirits that are like trapped somehow and we're hearing them and then you hear christopher from beyond the grave and so immediately it's it's like a key aspect of the show has been like turned on its head because whether the afterlife exists and whether all these characters are going to go to hell is a key concern of the Sopranos TV show. And there's, I I I just rewatched the scene because I couldn't remember it exactly, but there's a part where um, Christopher like, like is shot or something and goes to like hell or purgatory and comes back and is telling Tony and, um, and Polly about it. And like, they don't believe him. But he's like, but it seems, but he had, it's either like, so he's had some sort of vision while he's like near death and then comes back and tells him about it. And then there's various other points in the show where there's a dream or something. And it's like, is, you know, is the afterlife real? So in the world of the Sopranos, we now know the afterlife is real. Like that, that is now canon. <laughs> and, and so, and Christopher Moltisanti did go to hell. Like he's for, in the, uh, yeah, at the end, the final line. So it starts with this like, little introduction where he's like describing how he died. And then at the end, the like final or almost final line is like something like that's Tony Soprano, the man I went to hell for. And yes, it's I just, think that's it exactly. The man I went to hell for. Yeah. It's like a little button on it. Yeah. It's awful. I mean, it's like the, the beauty of those like kind of like liminal space death scenes is that they are such um, like, unfamiliar but sort of I don't know it almost feels like waking up from a dream and like parts of reality feel like a little bit off like they the way that that the original show renders like purgatory or death are just like is just like really like singular um right and and I mean dreams were a huge part of the original show and showing like dream world and there was famously an entire episode that took place in dream world after Junior shoots Tony in the chest and he's like almost dead. And and so it's like sort of, you know, an overarching question about the show is like, do are these characters punished for their horrible misdeeds? And if there is a hell, then they're all go- obviously all, they're all going to hell because it's all they're all murderers. Um, and so like, well, I guess that sort of like wraps everything up. Like, you know, what's, what's the point? We don't we we know like that these characters like are gonna be redeemed in life, and then it's like, oh, well, at least they're they're punished in eternal torment. So it just like, why did they make give any thoughts about why David Chase made this creative choice? It's so strange. It's almost like, 
you know, at the beginning of the Star Wars prequel, they were like, well, the force isn't real. It's all made up or something like it, it just seems to undermine like a key, like a central aspect of the original creation. Yeah. It's so bizarre. I mean, the only thing I can think of this redeeming is that health seems very mundane in, in that voice over it almost sounds like an AA meeting where people are just kind of going around giving their spiel. Um, well, do, do you remember what Christopher says when he has his vision of hell or purgatory? Do you remember what he says it was? Oh, I forgot. It was an Irish bar <laughs> where like none of the, there was gambling going on and none of the Italians were winning. The Irish characters uh-huh. who were there were winning. Yeah. So it's more, so his, so his vision is sort of, yeah, the interminable. In the right, yeah. Not the like Roman Catholic, like being chased with pitchforks kind of thing, but like just like endless you know you know tedium or something like that is, is some vision of hell <laughs> that christopher seems to have and and yeah and just like having was there ever anything i mean i guess there was always this like supernatural element to the show of like uh polly thinks a ghost is haunting him but it's never it's always ambiguous you know they, they never show the ghost like yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A, fant- a phantasm or something, and then I that's think, all thrown away. It's so strange. I mean, I think the only explanation I can think of for it is that they were trying to just like put some sauce on it, and they were like, "This will be a kind of cool way to frame a an otherwise sort of, I mean, at least linear narrative." Um, but yeah, it was. It definitely undermines sort of like the yeah core ambiguity of the of the series. Um, right. I think the best, and, and, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. completely a non sequitur, but the best description of the, um, afterlife I've ever read is in, uh, Cynthia Ozick in Pyromesser Papers. And, and what it's does like she say? Upsetting. I mean, I have it somewhere. It's like, <laughs> it's pretty long. Um, but it's basically like this, like, I, I, I can't, I can't do it justice, but like, uh, she's in heaven, but like it, it becomes horrible because everything like all of her greatest wishes are fulfilled, but they also all end and like restart. And so it's like, even in heaven, there's this kind of interminable cycle of getting everything you want, but then you realize it'll sort of be replaced by yeah, that, that, of, like infinity of, of at the afterlife. Yeah. That rem- there's a, a, a Julian Barnes in the history of the world in or 10 and a half chapters, whatever that book is called the final chapter is called like the new heaven or something. And it's, it's a similar idea of like a paradise where you could get whatever you want to do, whatever you want. Eventually that would, that becomes boring because you know, it, it's infinity of pleasure eventually wanes. And that's a little bit what like the good place, the end of the good place also, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Very good place-y. but, but yeah, but none of these characters are going to heaven. Like we know, we know that if there's a heaven, you know, Tony Soprano is not getting into it. And, and this reminds me like the, so okay so famously the show ended in this ambiguous way with the cut to black and then that is directly referenced because tony is holstein's the the place where the final scene of soprano tv show takes place has a key role in the film so they're reminding you of that and i and so you know whether tony soprano is supposed to die in that moment or not is forever up (laughs) like up in the air and fans will be debating it but my my interpretation of that scene when it happened actually you know, 15 years ago and it's still that oh you real you realize that the the tension that the, and it's this it's like a brilliant piece of art the the tension that is created in you because you know the show you know the show is ending and you're thinking something's going to happen and every person comes to the door you think is this person about to take a gun out and start blowing tony away and and then you realize like oh this is tony's the rest of tony's life this is like he is in hell like mm-hmm. like he he th- any person could be about to 
uh, cap him at, at, at any moment. And so he has no like moment of, even when he's surrounded by his, his beloved family, quote unquote, um, he has no moment of peace because he could be killed at, at any second and he has to look around his shoulder and, and any person could kill him. And so that, that effect was created like sympathetically or empathetically or something in the viewer and then yeah. suddenly cut off and ended and you were stuck with that. And so that's like, <laughs> you know, a brilliant piece of, of filmmaking. And, and like it's that. like, he created a hell on earth for himself. And so it ultimately doesn't maybe really matter that much, whether he goes to hell or there is an afterlife or something. And then the fact that it's like, oh yeah, Christopher's in hell. And so I guess Tony's there also. because Christopher's in hell. Tony has to be there, of course. And so I don't know. It's just, it's all, it's all so strange. Um, but I just, one other thing I did want to bring up is just how, yeah, like how clumsy it is. And there's just lines that you can't possibly imagine ever being in the original Sopranos. And the one that struck me, it's like in the first couple of minutes is when uh, the Harold, the black character's like wife or girlfriend or something says something like, uh, he runs a numbers game and it's like the only way and us black like, folks can get out of Newark is through the numbers or something. It's just like, it's like, like sh- I'm your girlfriend. Here's my expository dialogue line about our socio-political situation at this moment in time. Nothing else about me is important. Yes. Like it's, it's so, it's, and it's like, I mean, it's so clunky. It's like how to, whereas the, the original show is so ambiguous and so and like, endless, like the, the sort of like specific neurosis that develops in it. I mean, I feel like a lot of also the, a lot of the Sopranos is about people shutting off certain parts of their brain to maintain collective delusions, like for the sake. And and I think that within families is something that Chase has always done really well. The way you sort of like all you know dance around like a Janice Soprano and like um, and yeah, it, it felt like. The families, the new characters in many saints, and like specifically the black characters, are just like don't have any of that sort of like specificity or that sort of like here's what this family is like. Here are the sort of like you know habits and myths that kind of hold it together. Yeah, they're just kind of like I, I don't mean, know. That, that one also struck me as something that was just like so. Those, those characters like, could have almost been excised from the plot with almost no difference. The only the only way they really impact the plot is the affair with the Gumar, and and that causes and the, and the causes the, there's like the, to, the mob conflict where they're like you know attacking each other's mobsters. But yeah, I mean like and but it's that, yeah, but ultimately that because you th- you think maybe that Harold the Leslie Odom character is going to kill Dicky, but it turns out that Junior Soprano ordered the hit instead. And that, so there were, the thing is there were oh, so flash- that was like the worst plot point. I'm like, I don't even care. Yeah. And like the, but it's also that in the frame that the film establishes from the beginning, which is, this is a story about Newark. This is a story where one of the inciting incidents is the Newark uprising. Those characters are much more relevant. Like the Leslie Odom Jr. character, I think his name is Harold McBrayer in the story, but like that set of characters is much more relevant to that historical framing then the Sopranos who leave to the suburbs, like there is literally a scene where Tony Soprano as a teenager steals an ice cream truck and gives away ice cream to children, which is like funny, but like so irrelevant to like any of the stakes that this movie has like set for itself. Um, but yeah, they, they it, I think you can kind of tell that like the interest of Chase and I think Lawrence Connor is a co-writer on it. So I, I want to, lay the blame at his feet too um kind of just is not there it's like with the sopranos which i don't know maybe something that 
you also noticed was that like a lot of the actors are playing younger versions of Sopranos characters who like everyone like kind of knows all the like bits and idioms and like the gestural lexicon. It was like all of it was so like corny and kind of. It's somewhere between sort of an SNL imitation of these characters and like Muppet babies or something. So yeah, yeah, so there's like five or six characters who are where the actor is specifically imitating the like ticks and look of iconic characters from the series. And you mentioned um, the Livius, the woman who played Livius Soprano, whose name just is now escaping. Me also. Yeah, who's a great actress, and I think to, uh, maybe does the best job. But it's it's very caricatured. Whereas like the the actress who played her in um, the Sopranos, who died like in the middle of the second or third season or something, you know, it's it's very subtle. And so there's parts where it's like, you know, you're you're waiting. Like they all say their catchphrases, and so she says, "Poor you." <laughs> And Junior says he doesn't he doesn't have the makings of a varsity athlete. And, you know, I, I assume like, There's uh, this, you know, the scene where um, Anthony's father shoots through Olivia's beehive hairdo, which he talks which is about. referred to, which is referred to in the show. Right. Yeah. yeah As yeah. like a funny yeah. thing that happened. I guess I never pieced this together before. But when I when I went to see uh, Marvel and Marvel Avengers Endgame in theaters, um, someone I talked to about it was like, the movie was all people introducing themselves to each other, like being like, I'm Spider-Man. I haven't met you before. I'm from the Spider-Man movies. And then the other guy's like, I'm Rocket, the raccoon. I'm from this other movie franchise. We're just meeting, but we're going to be. And it felt weirdly like it felt similar in that, like you're bringing back all of these sort of like everyone wants their favorite character to get their line. So there's like a certain amount of space it's just reserved for like, I'm Polly and I say this. And then like, everyone's like, yay, he said the line. Um, yeah, it's like, it's like that like Simpsons, the Simpsons meme. You know, we're exactly, waiting, exactly. For, waiting for them to see. Plus, but like Simpsons meme where every character in the main cast has their own line that they like need to deliver. Yeah, and the guy who they got to play young Sill is like doing, I mean, it's beyond SNL. If this was on SNL, it'd be like considered broad. He like, the, you know, he's doing like the turned down face thing that that little Steven has and kind of walking in that weird way. But like an old man walks like that, a younger man wouldn't walk like that and doing the like kind of, kind of thing. It's just like, it's, it's yeah, it's so broad. It, it just seems like, how could they have let this happen? It's so, it's, it's such a like weird train wreck. I don't, I don't know. I mean, yeah. And, th- and then the other thing is like, what well, other thing is lots we can continue talking about and ragging on the ship, but like why, you know, it would make sense to tell the story of how Tony Soprano became the sociopathic leader of the DeMeo crime family in northern New Jersey. But that is like is the B plot at best. Um, I mean, he's like a child. The only crime he does is accept a stolen is that correct? I think I think he doesn't really do any big crimes. Well, he he's run, he's doing these like little kid versions, like he's running the numbers. I mean, that's funny. He's running the numbers at his school. Oh, by, at his school, yeah, yeah. By taking bets on what the uh, absent, how many kids are, will be absent each day, and then and then some some kid you know get the announcer of last figure, and some kid jumps up and says, "I hit sixteen, I hit." Um, so that's kind of funny. And but yeah, he's like like where is the where does he become the sociopath? Like that is yeah. By that doesn't end, make sense. Like 
the end is like he wants to be more involved in the family crime business and then he like can't because his uncle was killed but because his uncle was killed it would make more sense of him to say okay i'm gonna go to college seton hall where he did a semester and a half i believe and and like leave the family behind it doesn't make any sense you know his beloved uncle who was decided to treat him like shit to get him to not enter the crime life is killed and then he enters the crime life and do you want to talk about the pinky swear Oh God, which one was that? I'm sorry. Okay, so it's it's shown like halfway through when uh <laughs> when Dickie has like a heart to heart with Tony. Oh, yeah, they the they do a pinky swear and he and he and he makes Tony promise to play by the rules. And then the final one of the final scenes is Dickie's funeral, and you see Tony looking down at the casket of you know, embalmed uh, Dickie. And, and and there were so many scenes in The Sopranos of where a character gets killed and then you they showed them embalmed in the open casket and they always looked, you know, they, they play, I don't know, they made them look exaggeratedly embalmed and dead, you know? That, that, that happened like 30 times in the series. And then it, I think it starts to play, it, it plays the very beginning of The Sopranos theme song. And then- oh, I and, forgot. And then Tony has a vision of the corpse of Dickie raising up his pinky and doing a pinky swear. And the and this camera is just, you know, is showing like this, the pinky's linked. And I was, I mean, that was a real like mind blowing, what, another what the fuck were they thinking sort of moment. And that's, and that's like the, you know, playing the Darth Vader theme, you know, right when he, um, you know, is, is rising and the end of so really bad. Tony turning on camera and being like, that's when I decided to become the Sopranos. <laughs> when he's like, and that's when I decided to wake, to wake up and get myself a gun. And they're like winking at the camera. It's, 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 like, that, it's like that level. It's so, it's so bizarre. It's so it's such a miss. Like they Yeah, no, I mean, but, I feel I feel I watched it for free and I feel scammed. I feel like I've been um you know when when someone like buys sneakers online and they come and they're like really tiny and then you message the seller and they're like hee hee. Oh yeah, they were like advertising. They were actually dolls, like doll furniture. So you thought you're buying exactly, a table exactly. for like fifty bucks, but actually you get doll furniture. Um, and yeah, so I don't. Okay, I don't know what else to say about this. It's it's bizarre. Maybe maybe someone a couple of years will write some article about like why this went so awry or something. In like a bo- there's that book about the bonfire of the vanities where it's like explains how this was such a total disaster because like it's i don't know it's like it's such a it's it's almost like a worse betrayal than like star wars because there's only three star wars movies they're all good but like there are like 150 surprise episodes they're almost all really good and then we have this you know this turd that's uh, <laughs> that we're presented with and um and yeah I, I actually did pay for it so i i, I do i i want my money back mr chase and um it's I'm trying to think of anything else. It was I. I, um, I just mentioned that, uh, South Orange gets shouted at my hometown as the place where Dion Warwick is from in a, a throwaway line, and so I was happy about that because I don't think they ever say South Orange in the series itself. But um, <laughs> but aside from that, I uh, they mentioned the Throwback Zoo, which I, that's in West Orange um, in the in the show. But um, aside from that, the, the the scene where um, in the dream in the um, Kevin Finnerty dream where Tony is like maybe dead, maybe not dead, um, the place where the house that uh, Steve Buscemi is trying to get him to go into to that's like heaven or like the afterlife is mm-hmm. in my hometown, of course. 
Oh, that's funny. Um, yeah, and so there's, yeah, the, the show itself had all these little Easter eggs for New Jersey heads, and there weren't that many of them. Wait, but there was one, there was one other thing I wanted to bring up, but it's escaping me right now. Um, okay, so a, a thumbs down from both of us for um, yeah, yeah. Many Days of Newark. Or like, yeah, I, I guess the only interesting thing, I agree with you that like, the only interesting thing I think that still could be squeezed from this bad movie is I'm so curious on the business side, what went into pushing it out in this format that like, I don't know, maybe the person who's giving notes is not as good now or oh, like well, they, a different person or he got, I don't know, but the other, yeah. the other possible parallel to episode to the star Wars prequels is once, once the creator has been certified genius by society and then they're given a free reign and a blank check to do whatever they want. And so it wasn't quite the same because they didn't have an unlimited budget in the way that like George Lucas had hundreds of millions of dollars to create his movies. There was no one to say no, you know, no George, you shouldn't have Jar Jar Binks or no, uh, you know, Mr. Chase, you shouldn't have, you know, Silvio Jr. Like little kid Silvio hopping around and doing this crazy walk. It was just, um, that's, that's the only, that's another possibility. It's just like. I'm always going down to the Jersey shore and I'm like, I hate sand. It's so rough and coarse and it gets everywhere. Okay. That's a good wrap up um, for, for that. Oh, but okay. I did remember the last thing I want to say. There are moments of old Sopranos wit that are there. It's not totally absent. And so one is just basically lines. And so there's one, there's a strange plot line where Ray, <laughs> what's his name? Um, the, the, there's an actress playing a double role. And what is his name? The guy from God. Ray Liotta is playing a double role. And so he's both the father that uh, Dickie murders. And then he's Dickie's uncle who is in the lockup for life for, for killing a made man. And then, so it's strange that he's, you know, you think this character is gone and then he goes and meets someone who looks the same in prison. It's a short turnaround. It's like four minutes or something. I think it's very, it's very disorienting because yeah. in the trailer they show, um, they show a scene of Ray Liotta in the prison garb. And so you think that the, that the dad character is going to end up in prison. So it's, it's very strange, but there's a line where he, he brings a Sviadel and offers it to him. And, and he says, I don't eat dairy. And that's the kind of, that's a kind of like funny, ironic shit that the Sopranos yeah. was great at and there were sparks of sparks of it interspersed throughout there but yeah it wasn't it yeah, was yeah there were, I mean there were moments but like again they were like not like that that energy was spent on like these like little lines that were really good and not on like the plot structure or the sort of like you know details that make the the sort of primary cast compelling and make their struggles feel real. And like, yeah, yeah, I agree that there were moments and they were almost entirely like ill-placed to make the movie better. But, but yeah, there were some. Yeah, and the, and the show itself is so funny. And, yeah. and this, oh my God, this so the movie is not funny. What, no fucking um, movie? Well, they do... They do set up how great the ZD is. There is a line about how great no, the and that also sums me out. I'm like, stop setting up these lines. Like, we already know the lines. We like the lines. Yeah, it's it's like yeah. There's all imagine there's all these fans out there who are like, what was the secret to Livia Z that made it so good that AJ was willing to say no fucking ZD 
when she wasn't showing up, it's like, oh, she put the bones in there. Like that's, you know, it's like that level of. You finally cracked it. <laughs> yeah. I recently um, watched the Billy Bud one again, and I forgot how good Carmela going. Billy Bud is not gay. <laughs> so Schaefer. So they could have done something with that. They didn't have a Billy Bud reference. Um, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, they could have shown. They could have shown because teenage teenage um, Carmela is in it for one scene. They could have shown her like reading like a paperback of Herman Melville short stories or something. So that could have been a little Easter egg for the fans. That kind of stuff. I don't know. It's it's yeah, and just I mean just. The performances in the first in the show are like almost universally good. There's a couple stinkers, but like versus the performances in this, which are, you know, they're just like nothing. It's either these caricatures, Muppet Baby kind of thing, or, um, or kind of like the main the guy who played Dicky. It was sort of like a blank almost. I don't know. It's so bizarre. Um, I, 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 the other like sorry, go ahead, go ahead. But he, I thought, I thought he performed well at like the sort of like almost like shark-eyed menace kind of vibe. But yeah, I mean, it, 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 there wasn't a ton of, to work with. I think it was more bad writing than bad performances, but the performances were also bad. My tier yes. list of worst things about this movie. Yes, bad, bad writing and bad performances. The, the one other positive thing I'll say is the, the like teenage actress who they found to play, um, uh, why am I forgetting every single name of all these characters? The Ada Totoro character, uh, Janice, tr- was strangely looked exactly like what you think a teenage Ada Totoro would yeah. look like. So some of those things were matching, but then like the, you know, making someone up to look like a young Polly didn't quite work. It was also strange. Um, okay, I think we've exhausted this, this topic. Um, but let's talk about The mass Singer, which you wrote a really entertaining piece about over the summer. And so what is this? Okay. What is it? If you haven't heard of the show, what is it? And that's part of your piece is like, you can't describe the show to someone who's never heard of it. Okay. Uh, how, so it begins try. with a South Korean show called King of Masked Singer, where celebrity guests come on, they're wearing a mask. Um, they perform a, like a pop song and then like a panel of judges makes jokes and tries to guess who they are. And like the point of this TV show is not, to be a good singer, to guess correctly, or I don't know, to like give a memorable performance. It's like just this, like, I don't know. This is this is a metaphor I've never successfully made in a short period, but you know, Google Deep Dream, that like AI image generator that you like give it a picture of a dog and it comes back out covered in like eyes and like leaves. Okay. It's yes. Like, Mara is like if you gave an AI image generator a competition reality show and we're like make this and they're like oh so you want a character named the bee and everyone in the audience goes buzz 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 when they come out like great we got it and like it's that i mean there's um so the american version here how many seasons it's at now it's over four um and has like a couple spin-offs there's like a masked um there's like a after show there's like a masked dancer kind of version um and basically celebrities come on, they give these inscrutable clue packages about their identity. And some of the clues are like super obvious. <laughs> like they're like, I run with a crew of Panthers. And it's like someone who was on the pan- like on a sports team. And some of them are like, you know, like it was really hard for me when like my wings were clipped at the rodeo and it's like someone who wanted a horse when they were 12 and then never got it. And you're like, I don't know how I would know this about you. Like there's one about Terry Crews having horses. And I'm like, I don't fucking know that you have 
horses. I don't barely know who you are. Um, and they, okay, so um, it, the show has the ostensible shape of like an American Idol singing competition. Yes, yes. So people perform panel. One person gets voted off per episode. However, there is no cash prize. There's no donation prize. There's barely any prestige attached. You get a little trophy at the end. Um, people have used it to like relaunch music careers. T-Pain won. And I think that was big for him. Um, so the, Okay. And the celebrities are of the caliber of like, you know, celebrity big brother season seven or something like these are it really depends i think it depends on kind of what area you're going into i mean like famously sarah palin was on it so like i think it's probably easier for like a sports celebrity to get on than like uh i don't know i think i think actor wise probably not as many like a list i mean no one a list has ever been on the show but i, I think there's like a pretty decent range of notability between like who's on there Okay. Like a lot of really yes. talented singers have actually like been on there. Um, Liam Rhymes was on it. Like, you know, oh, it's really? Like, yeah, it's like people who actually know what they're doing. So it's also like inherently weighted towards people who are famous for singing because they're going to perform better in a singing competition than like an ice skater. Um, but yeah, it's it's just completely incomprehensible. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's okay. great. I mean, it's like one of the most wonderful things that's happened in the last. <laughs> In the TV well, landscape. So we'll we'll include the link to the piece, which is very good. And you, the surreal pleasures of the mass singer is the headline. And yeah, you sort of describe it as sort of a uh, more aesthetic experience than anything <laughs> else because the the it's trappings a sound of bath, basically just think of it as a sound bath. <laughs> right, and the um, and yeah, because the the stakes are so low, it, it's so hard to understand what's actually happening. And yeah, the fact that there's no prize actually reminds me a little bit of Great British Bake Off, where there's no prize also, mm -hmm. except those are those are total unknown amateurs, and these are like right, or, yeah, B or C list or washed up celebrities or singers, and like so yeah, like Taylor Dane was was one of the um, was she the B or something? <laughs> I'm trying to remember from your piece. Exactly what? Yeah. But then it's it's also like I I mainly found out I think I maybe saw a commercial too for it, but it has a like there it has real fans and it has like an online following. And then whenever it's on things trend on Twitter that are related to people guessing who is under the mask or like whatever, like the, you know, the, the purple unicorn is actually, you know, yeah. Dan I mean, Quayle or something. Is, and, it's incredibly easy to crack after one episode, after the first appearance, people cracked it on Reddit. I mean, it's, these are not, hard clues to crack if you can just Google like what these references are and also see when, you know, I don't know if someone's like, I guess, I guess now their filming schedule has shrunk, but like you can always tell what celebrities on a show. Um, but yeah, I think people enjoy it. I think probably some of the fandom is ironic, but who knows? Maybe not. Um, yeah. Um, is it, can you can you drop in at any point and just have that aesthetic experience? Is a is a season oh, yeah. right now? Or? It's it's something that like I think the thing I sort of was drawn to about it is like I watch a lot of reality TV and a lot of um, something I talk about in the piece is the shows that succeed um, reality shows that succeed in American TV tend to be um, sort of like simplified capitalist fables where the or competition one specifically um where yeah. the judging is 
presented as meritocratic. The reward that you get at the end is fame and money. Um, and the person who's chosen as the winner is supposed to be like the best. So you like work for the title and then you earn it. Like, you know, all of the cooking shows chopped, uh, top chef, like the apprentice is like a really fucked up version of this survivor is similar where you're like the person who's earned it ends up winning the prize at the end. And there's a sort of comfort in seeing a place where like this system, no matter how like simplified where it like, the fantasy that it works is maintained, even though like, I've never seen any of America's next top models on a billboard, but like you still watch it because you're like within the set of this. I, I believe the narrative that this is producing the most, you know, this is working like the market. Um, and those rely on narrative and like build and like you kind of see the kind of bootstrap narrative throughout the season as the winner is chosen. And the nice thing about the mass singer is there's no meritocracy. I mean, like, I guess people are better singers than others, but it's all like a wash basically. And it's non-narrative. I mean, like you can maybe get invested in someone over the season, but you're only hearing from people as clue packages. They do like a very brief onstage Q and A um, and they're wearing like a huge mask and like this like crazy costume. So you don't like, really like invest in anyone because there's so much stuff like physically and also like aesthetically between you and like the person behind the mask so you can completely just drop in for one episode see some weird shit and then like drop back out like it it makes no difference i mean watching it while you have a fever and while you don't have a fever is going to be the same experience yeah and i was just remi- remembered that there was a clip from it out of context that went viral over the summer maybe in last summer where, where there was a snail do you i think i even sent it to you. Remember this? <laughs> yeah so there was a snail you thought it was ted cruz like part of the funny thing is that the the panelists aren't good at guessing and like yeah i think no nicole scherzinger maybe someone guessed like from the song it was like he was like that's ted cruz it was okay so i'll I'll track down the clip and include the link it really truly is like a revelatory like you know 45 seconds of video but so there's a simulacra inside the simulacra there's a a uh, snail you know allegory of the cave like they're like holding like the sign of of a puppet and then inside that puppet there's another puppet <laughs> okay then help me remember if i'm getting this wrong there's a snail that's singing on stage and then there mm-hmm. it's time to unmask the snail and yes. then the snail and you are only unmasked when you're voted off so you're kind of like the only time you get to know who someone is and you're like oh i get it i get why they're on the show that's kind of fun like is when they're leaving, they're like out the door. And yeah, and then they're like immediately like, <laughs> yeah. So they're only on stage as their actual, you know, real like, identity very oh, briefly, yeah. and then they're off forever. And so, <laughs> well, it, okay. So the <laughs> snail, like it's <laughs> its hat, like opens up or something. Yeah, it has a top hat. A top hat. And then what emerges out of the top hat is <laughs> Kermit the Frog, right? And or is like, there an intermediate Kermit, step? Like, not like a, not like a everyone else is a human person on this show. I feel like that is something I would not- Kermit, the, it's a Kermit the Muppet, Muppet-sized Kermit. Muppet-sized, Muppet like little like sticks on the hands, little Kermit. Yes, and he, and Kermit. Muppet-sized Kermit has that sort of like mic that American Idol singers have yeah. attached to his 
face. And, and that that's the key detail, I think. And so we're and then and then the judges are all like, it's Kermit, it's Kermit. And it was it's just yeah, the fact that not only is it Kermit, but Kermit is in fact singing from his felt mouth, you mm-hmm. know, it, it it truly like leapt like beyond the bounds of like logic and into some sort of like higher realm of of art or something. And it's, I'm sorry if I maybe I spoiled the uh, the ending for it, but uh, it's really Kermit, if, if, if you're still listening Kermit to this, real? yeah, you need to. Uh, the link will be below on the blogging site, and and you, you can see this clip and. Because the first time I saw it, I was I had no idea what was going to happen, and then Kermit coming out, it, it just you know it was like a portal to another dimension or something. It was so it was so utterly bizarre. And again, like on any other reality show, a epistemic change like that would make people very angry. Like if you were on Chopped, and then one of the people you were competing against was like Big Bird or a robot, like the contestants and the fans would be like, this is a competition show for human people. Like you can't have a, a puppet competing on this show, but on the terms of the masked singer, like you're like, yeah, sure. Probably like next week, it's going to be like Roblox or like a carrot. Like, I don't fucking know. Throw them in there. <laughs> yeah. And everyone, everyone in the audience and the judges are like also delighted that it's Kermit. Yeah. Well, the audience was fake during COVID too. Maybe so, that, like, maybe that's part of it. Yeah. Are, are like a little like movie magic. Um, yeah. The <laughs> yes. judges are delighted. I mean, I think they have to be delighted. There's like no negative affect on the show really. Yeah. It's yeah. So it's like relentlessly positive, <laughs> but yeah. And I'm, you know, I was delighted when I saw Kermit, you know leap up also um okay anything else you want to say about mass singer before we before we i mean just that i've had a theory since the beginning that henry kissinger was every person on it and i'm still waiting i think he's gonna be on the show i mean i guess so my thesis with the mass singer is that it's popular because it is like too weird to be political like it's i do think it's like a pretty apolitical show because there's so much like like junk <laughs> like in it however they're one canceled celebrity away from becoming political like they've had sarah palin on they've had uh logan paul which i thought was really funny um and then they had uh they had, uh, caitlin jenner on there um so if they have one more i think then they become a, like a weird rehabilitative uh organ for for people who um have had like negative media coverage over their political opinions Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and and you know, you know who the person should be? Who? Former U.S. Secretary Henry Kissinger, responsible for <laughs> war crimes. Let's get him in a penguin suit. Put him up there. Okay, well, we know it, it that Bob Dole could, is is not going to be able to participate yeah. in any future season, but no, he's Kissinger a great is still. Though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Also, I mean, if someone... you can put a, a dead, uh, sorry, uh, if you can put a puppet on, um. Now, Singer, you could put a hologram of, of someone who's passed away. That's true. Yeah. So maybe Robert Kardashian could appear or Tupac or some of these other people who have been hologramified and walk. You Robert know. Kardashian would be a get for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I'm sure Kanye would be interested in participating in some way. Um, okay. <laughs> it's so it's so strange. Um yeah, and maybe the the fact that it's like seems to be totally divorced from our horrible reality is key to its appeal. And yeah, maybe it's the only thing that can unite this country. Um, is, is yeah. 
Yeah, Sophia. Joe so Biden, go on, mass singer, heal this wounded country. <laughs> Bring us together um, again. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm okay. So, what should we edit? She waited there. Is there anything else you want? Yeah. Like, you want to mention yeah we can't top ourselves but yeah check out honestly look find that that clip of kermit because it'll like it'll make you laugh um okay erin where can people find your content if they if they want more of it i don't think they should <laughs> fair enough um yeah so <laughs> no um my twitter is at web schwartz um and that's probably the best the best source but um yeah i just I would plug uh, joining the military. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, you know, that's actually something we didn't even touch on at all is that there's this sort of like, yeah, the way the military fits into the Macy's in Newark because there's a character who gets, who yeah, runs shot. into a recruiting office to try to escape getting capped and then he ends up, it ends up happening anyway. And you have, you know, the National Guard is called in um, during it. And yeah, there's this sort of, yeah, but it's never really, they never really do anything beyond that, I guess. Um, okay, so yeah, so you're Web Schwartz, I'm RACW. Um, you can like and subscribe and do all those things and tell your, tell your friends. <laughs> should, should we make a, a format for a, a, a passive-aggressive TikTok? Yeah, so so Aaron is possibly pointing at like buttons and stuff that you can interact with in some way to send us like a special message or to send Kermit a special message. Um, <laughs> uh, so thank you, Aaron, for coming back on and thank you to our viewers and listeners and we'll see you again next time.